What can we learn about African-American history in a stroll through a Southern cemetery? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm your host, Elizabeth, and as documented in a previous episode, I love cemeteries. My stroll through Eastview Cemetery in the Eastlake neighborhood of Atlanta inspired me to venture farther, albeit not much farther afield, to Washington Park Cemetery in Scottsdale, Georgia, located in DeKalb County and only a few miles from my home. The history of Washington Park Cemetery which is also called Washington Memorial Gardens, but I'm going to refer to it as Washington Park Cemetery, begins like Eastview Cemetery history did in the 19th century. But before we get to that, I want to give some more context to Atlanta and its surrounding counties in the early to mid 20th century. With Eastview, as you may remember, I found it difficult to reach people who knew the history of the cemetery. The cemetery office did not have posted hours. Instead, one was referred to a local funeral home if interested in a burial. And emailing the reps for the cemetery was, and this pun is intended, a dead end. Washington Park Cemetery was a very different experience, or I should say researching Washington Park Cemetery was a very different experience. At the cemetery, there was an office open during regular working hours, staffed by an office manager who didn't think that my presence was odd. While researching at the DeKalb History Museum, the head archivist, Fred Mobley, not only gave me sources on Washington Park Cemetery, but also gave me historical context for Atlanta area cemeteries, which could explain this different experience for me in researching these two cemeteries. And my conversation with Mr. Mobley is a prime example of how we can become so narrow in our focus that we miss the larger picture. I was so focused on the people buried in Eastview and Washington Park that I didn't put my knowledge of each into the greater context of Atlanta's history. Mr. Mobley brought up how the white cemeteries, meaning many cemeteries in which the members of the white lower or working class of DeKalb County were buried, so these white cemeteries fell into disuse in the mid-20th century due to the closure of local churches. So why did that happen? Why did local churches close? To know that, we need to turn to the history of geographic segregation. From the Atlanta race riots of 1906, which is a topic worthy of its own episode, until the 1950s, black residents of Atlanta and surrounding towns were legally only allowed to live in specific neighborhoods. In the 1950s, these laws were outlawed and black families began moving out of these no longer legally defined boundaries and into houses in areas that had been predominantly white. Areas like Cabbage Town, Reynolds Town, Kirkwood, and Eastlake, which were the settings of my last episode on a white cemetery in mid-20th century Atlanta. These churches closed because of white flight, which was when many white families left the increasingly racially mixed urban areas as integration spread and moved to more racially homogenous suburbs. The local churches had cared for the local cemeteries, but without parishioners, These churches closed their doors, and the cemeteries became forgotten and overgrown. This information provides context for East U Cemetery at the end of the 20th century and the attempts in the 21st century to bring attention to it. But unlike the white communities, black residents of Atlanta largely stayed in urban areas during and after integration. 
This is not to say that all was copacetic and fine for black families in Atlanta post-1950. There were still issues of redlining, for example. But because of white flight, cemeteries, like Eastview, were largely forgotten and became overrun. In this episode, we focus on another community that would experience white flight in the mid-20th century, Scottsdale, Georgia. Scottsdale, a small, even-to-this-day community right outside Atlanta, was founded after the Civil War by George Washington Scott, a supporter of the Confederacy who was originally from Florida and who had opened one of the mills that brought people to this area. Agnes Scott College, which he endowed, is named for his mother. The mill workers were both black and white, and right next to Washington Park Cemetery, the cemetery that is the subject of this episode, and I promise we will get there soon, right next to Washington Park Cemetery, we have another example of an overrun cemetery, the Scottsdale Mill Cemetery, where many of the white mill families buried their dead. But this cemetery, too, has been largely abandoned since the 1980s as the Scottsdale Mill Company closed in 1982. For this episode, what is most of note and most relevant, and why I did just spend so much time on context, was that white flight had an impact not only on the lives of those in Atlanta, but also the deaths. As pointed out, unlike the white communities in DeKalb and surrounding areas, the African-American communities did not leave and instead found homes and created communities in these areas. Communities that incorporated the final resting places of their members. Washington Park Cemetery, for instance, continues to have several burials a week, and it's an active business. But why, many of you might be asking, as I did, were there white or black cemeteries to begin with? Born and raised in New York, I was used to cemeteries being divided based on religion but not by race, or not explicitly by race. So why were cemeteries segregated in Atlanta by color? For that, we need to go further into the past than the mid-20th century. We need to delve into the history of slavery. Before the Civil War, slaves were sometimes buried in unmarked graves alongside their masters. Another small cemetery in DeKalb County, known either as the Parker Family or Stamps Chapel Cemetery, depending on which record you're reading, is one such location where this was common practice. In other places, slaves were granted their own cemeteries and buried their dead, incorporating a mix of Christian and African practices. Even in these, though, slave graves were often without headstones. They lacked identifying markers. In Athens, Georgia, the quote-unquote new cemetery, which opened in 1856, had a section for people who could not pay for burial. But their plots, like Stuart Maiden in my episode on Eastview Cemetery, were unmarked. And in this section, known as the Pauper Cemetery, that's where the African Americans were buried as well, in unmarked graves. So slavery and this practice ended with the Civil War and in 1865. But the respite was short. By 1877, Reconstruction efforts were officially over, and the gains the former slaves and black Americans had made were eroded by Jim Crow laws and the Supreme Court case Plessy v. Ferguson, which left cemeteries legally segregated along racial lines, just as so much else in the New South. For these reasons, then, for the first half of the 20th century, Eastview Cemetery was the resting place for white working-class residents of Fulton and DeKalb counties, and Washington Park Cemetery in Scottsdale, Georgia, was and is largely the final resting place for African Americans from DeKalb. A closer inspection of the cemetery gives us, therefore, a different vantage point into this new South. 
As far as we can tell, Washington Park Cemetery existed in a de facto but unofficial capacity prior to the Civil War as a place for slave burials. It is believed that slaves were buried in a corner of the land, but the graves were unmarked, and a few years ago, townhomes were built on the site, which makes exact understanding of the cemetery in the 19th century hard to know. Following the Civil War, though, Washington Park was an officially and legally recognized cemetery for African-American men and women. By the early 20th century, in fact, Washington Park Cemetery in Scottsdale, Georgia, was advertising itself as, quote, the South's most beautiful cemetery for colored people, end quote. A wonderful place for black families to bury their dearly departed relatives. The two different names for the cemetery, either Washington Park Cemetery or Washington Memorial Gardens, begins in 1947 when newspapers reported that a Scottsdale resident named Toby Grant gave land for the cemetery in memory of her two sons, both who had fought in World War II, one who was killed in action, and one who died in a trolley accident after returning home. Soon after, the cemetery was reborn as Washington Memorial Gardens, although by that point Grant said the cemetery was in honor of her mother, Nancy Kendall, a former slave. Newspaper articles described the opening, although I guess we could also call it a reopening or a rebranding, as what must have been the social event of the season. According to reports, 10,000 people were expected, there would be free barbecue, brass bands, and, quote, the most brilliant white and black speakers of the area, end quote. On our website, you can see an image of the obelisk Grant put up in the memory of her mother. So, by now, I hope you are asking, who was Toby Grant? Because A, we all should be asking that, and B, we all should be asking why Toby Grant is not more famous. Now, if you go to the website Find a Grave and look up Washington Memorial Gardens in Scottsdale, Georgia, it will say there is one famous person interned there, a professional wrestler named Ray Candy who died in 1994. I am sure Mr. Candy was famous and well-known, but I cannot believe that Toby Grant is not more well-known that she doesn't even make the list of famous burials in the cemetery that she partially helped create. So let me tell you about Toby Grant. But to do that, we need to start with her mother, Nancy Kendall, or, as she was known, Aunt Nancy Kendall. Aunt Nancy Kendall, according to reports, was born Nancy Davis circa 1853 as a slave in Upson County, Georgia. After the Civil War, she was freed, and later she married a man named Jacob Kendall, although conflicting census records also refer to her husband as John Kendall. And it's there that the popular mythology surrounding Nancy and her daughter Toby begin. Because the official records I can find have differing information that not only conflicts with other government documents, but conflicts with the information in the newspaper articles on Toby. According to legend, and I use the term legend deliberately, after getting married, Nancy gave birth to 13 children, the youngest of whom was Toby Grant. In 1888, with one-year-old Toby, Kendall moved to Wheat Street in Atlanta, Georgia. And it is here that I return to the fact that for the first half of the 20th century, African Americans in Atlanta were legally required to live within certain boundaries. These boundaries included Wheat Street, which would soon be renamed Auburn Avenue, and eventually given the nickname Sweet Auburn. This street became the center of black business, wealth, and civil rights in Atlanta, and some argued, the country and the world. By the way, the Auburn Avenue Research Library, which I visited in writing this episode, 
and I was helped by research librarian Gloria Mims in identifying African-American newspapers, is located right there and open to visitors. By stating that they moved to Auburn Avenue, which is how the newspapers of the 1920s and later described where Toby and her mother lived around the turn of the century, it put them right in the middle of the wealthiest area of Atlanta for African-Americans, and even for many white families. What, though, do the official documents tell us? I turned, as I am wont, to census records and learned that Toby was her mother's fourth, but not youngest, child, that she was born a full decade before she later claimed, and that she and her mother moved not directly onto Wheat Street, but to a place known as Lynch's Alley, right around the corner. The family then moved to within their legal limits for people of their skin color, but not directly onto Wheat Street. Instead, they were adjacent to it. I can't help but think of the opening of the classical musical Singing in the Rain, where Don Lockwood is recounting his privileged upbringing, but the audience sees that he actually had a childhood that was anything but privileged. In 1900, Toby married Julius Grant. All that, though, is second place to what I really want to talk about, because also in 1900 on that census record, Nancy Kendall, Toby's mother, lists her occupation as clairvoyant. And later, in the 1920 census, Toby's occupation is palmistry. That's right, the Kendall-Grant fortune was partially built on the mother-daughter gift of second sight. Her story, or Toby's story, about how she realized that she was gifted in this way also belies the story of prosperity that the belief that she grew up on Wheat Street creates. According to Toby, at age eight, she told a white woman that her missing husband would return shortly. How did she know this white woman? They worked together. The young Toby worked before she and her mother moved to Atlanta. But on arriving in Atlanta, it seems that the Kendall family fortunes quickly changed and grew to the extent that by 1937, people are impersonating Toby Grant and being paid to give fake fortunes. In the Atlanta Daily World, which was the newspaper published for the African-American community in Atlanta and beyond, Toby advertised for information about the woman masquerading as her. Newspaper articles from the 1920s to 1960s also give evidence of Toby's ability. Stories include, for example, that she threatened to put a hex on the KKK if they got too active. Over the first 30 years of the 20th century, Toby got married, either had or adopted children, and that part is somewhat all unclear, although by World War II she does have two adult sons, and she also found the time to become a successful Atlanta businesswoman. Toby and her family relocated to Scottsdale by the 1930s, but they were still attending Wheat Street Baptist Church on Auburn Avenue. The church seems to have been attended by the more well-to-do members of the Black Atlanta community. In 1947, Toby was crowned the Modern Queen of Sheba at an event at the Wheat Street Church. The event was publicized in the Atlanta Daily World, and tickets for attendance were sold via the Hogabrook's Funeral Home and the church office, indicating that Toby was a local celebrity capable of bringing in a crowd at a fundraiser. A year later, Toby and 23 prominent black Republicans who had served as members of the Republican State Central Committee in Georgia published, quote, an open letter to the Negroes of Georgia in general and Negro Republicans in particular, end quote, in the Atlanta Daily World. Though a Republican herself, Toby and others believed that the National Republican Party was turning its back on the black community in Georgia and other places, and they listed several incidents for which they said the white Republican leadership was responsible, 
and by which they were going against the best interests of the black community in Georgia. For Toby, the daughter of a slave freed by the party of Abraham Lincoln, this must have been a hard step. She and the other signees knew and were related to people who had been born in bondage, but they no longer felt that the National Republican Party was protecting their interests. Toby had pull. She had money. She had political clout. And even though there were reports that a good deal of her money came from an insurance company she owned, her notability came from what I mentioned above, palmistry. From the 1920s to the 1950s, Toby provided the services of fortune-telling, until that form of employment was shut down by DeKalb County. However, according to reports over those decades, and maybe beyond, she had found missing persons, had not only predicted the atomic bomb, but even the death of her own son. Toby didn't like the term fortune-teller, though. She preferred sense-giver, and this is how she referred to her ability. She described it as like seeing a moving picture. Her clientele that would come to her house in Scottsdale for a session were mostly white and very wealthy. Some came from as far away as Tennessee. One day a week, though, Toby would set aside an afternoon for members of the black community to see her for advice. She was also known to mail small gifts and other necessities to friends back in the poor black areas from which she had come as a child. Her obituary, published on March 24, 1968 in the Atlanta Daily World, captures the legend that was Toby Grant for this Atlanta area, white and black, in the mid-20th century. It has some mistakes, such as saying that she was born on Auburn Avenue, but the summing up by the Reverend William Holmes Borders at the service at the Wheat Street Baptist Church presents Toby as she was seen, and this is a long quote from the article. Striking his own forehead, Dr. Borders said, Toby had plenty of this up here. She had no Ph.D., but she had far beyond the curriculum which hedged in PhDs. She was a prophetess, not without honor in her own country. She dealt with all alike and called herself a counsel or an advisor and one sent from God to a generation for its enlightenment, end quote. We move, though, from Toby Grant, a forgotten celebrity of mid-century Atlanta, to another story which also gives us an idea of the success that black women were capable of in this metropolitan area even within a few generations at the end of slavery. But for this story, we begin not with a woman, but a teenage boy. On Clifford Smith's headstone, it simply says, son, above his name. Clifford was only 16 when he died in 1949, and his obituaries in the Atlanta Constitution, in which his death was listed in the special section reserved for colored folk, and the Atlanta Daily World, and in which Toby Grant advertised they don't give a cause of death. Before we continue, I want to talk about something I noticed during my research. As mentioned, when Clifford passed away in 1949, the Atlanta Constitution, a newspaper with a very wide circulation at this point, had a section for obituaries and then a section for the obituaries of those identified as colored. The obituaries for white folks did not say white, as that was obviously a given. It was the non-white dead who needed to be identified as such. During my research, I also looked up a man who had passed away in 1965 and was buried in Washington Park Cemetery. In the Atlanta Constitution for that year, though, the dead were not categorized based on color. They were grouped together, and this could possibly be seen as a reaction to integration. When I looked at the records for Toby's death, though, in the late 60s, there was again a division, but this time by funeral home. I wondered, but have not investigated further, 
If this shift in the late 60s was a way of separating out whites from blacks, but in a less overt way. I assume most people would have known which were the funeral homes patronized by which races. But those are questions, I suppose, for another time. What then can we learn about Clifford, the 16-year-old who died in 1949? In the 1940 census and his obituary, Clifford is listed as living at the same address, a boarding house in Atlanta. The boarding house was only a few blocks away from Auburn Avenue, as well as from Oakland Cemetery, where Grover Sanders, who featured in my last episode, lived and died. The boarding house is gone now, but at the time, Clifford lived in the rear apartment with his grandmother and mother, both widows, and his older brother. This widowhood might have been recent for both women, as in the 1930 census, but before Clifford's birth, his mother and grandmother are living elsewhere in a shared house with their husbands. In 1930, Clifford's grandmother worked in a pencil factory, his mother was a laundress for a private family, and his father and grandfather worked in street and building construction. As in the 1940 census, Clifford's grandmother is listed as owning the boarding house a few blocks from where the family had rented together in 1930, it is possible that the women pooled their resources after their deaths of their husbands, one who could deduce were successful at their contracting business. In 1940, Clifford is listed as being in first grade, and he and his family can read and write. His grandmother, Mary Washington, age 50, stated that she had finished second grade, and his mother, Lula Mae Smith, age 33, says she has completed third grade. There are several families living in the boarding house, many with children around Clifford and his brother's ages, and if one compares education age in the house, at 12 and in fifth grade, the children were still in school. But that might have been the end of their education as the lone 16-year-old in the house is working and lists fifth grade as the last grade completed. It is possible then that nine years later when he died at 16, Clifford was already out of school and working. But since his grandmother owned the boarding house, potentially he still would have been in school. Beyond that, little is known of Clifford and his life, but his story brings us down yet another path. His funeral was arranged by the Hogabrook Funeral Home, which you might remember sold tickets for the fundraiser at the Wheat Street Baptist Church, at which Toby Grant was crowned Queen of Sheba. The funeral home opened in 1929 and moved to Auburn Avenue in 1937. It's still there. You can pass it on the street as you drive from Auburn Avenue Research Library to the King Memorial in sight of Ebenezer Baptist Church. Mrs. Geneva Moden Hogabrooks, who opened the funeral parlor, attended the Wheat Street Baptist Church, and I would wager that as two African-American businesswomen, that she and Toby Grant, at the very least, knew each other. Although the obituary I have for Toby does not state who arranged her funeral, I would find it hard to believe that it was not Hogabrooks. Mama Hogabrooks, as she was known, was described as an altruistic businesswoman in her obituary, and I rather think that our next story might better explain in what ways she was altruistic. She also arranged the funeral of the last person I want to highlight in this story, and you might say that as much as I am fascinated by Toby, and I feel a fondness for young Clifford and wish I knew more about him, it is with Abby Charleston that my heart lies. As I walk through the cemetery, I passed many headstones, read things like son or mother, the dates of when they lived and died, but all of these headstones were professionally made. Addie Charlton's initial headstone that I saw, though, was created by hand to mark her grave, most likely by someone or at their bequest who didn't want to lose her in the vast graveyard, but I assume could not afford to buy her a proper headstone until much later. If you click on further reading on our website under this post, 
you can see Addie's handmade headstone, as well as the later one she was given. Who, then, was Addie? Before I get into Addie's life, like my Eastview Cemetery episode where Dorothy Reynolds had her name spelled multiple ways across records, so too was Addie's. On her headstone, it is Charlton. In her obituary, in the colored section of the Atlanta Constitution, like Clifford, it is Charleston. According to census records, Addie was born around 1882. Her maiden name was most likely Morris, and she and her husband Simon were living in Johnson County in 1920. They were farmers on rented land, or what we would term sharecroppers. They had a number of children. It is unknown why Addie moved to DeKalb County, but by her death on January 8, 1937, she was living in Scottsdale, Georgia. I had guessed that her husband had passed away in Johnson County, as he is not on the formal tombstone by her grave, which lists Addie, her son John, and potentially John's wife Irma. But further research seems to have her husband Simon and some of their children living in Fort Wayne, Indiana in the late 1940s. It is possible that without her husband, Addie moved to Scottsdale to work in the mill there, as the Great Depression most likely made sharecropping in Johnson County even more dire. There is evidence that at least one of her daughters lived in Scottsdale as well, but before we get there, I want to spend another moment on how this tombstone was handmade. I've only found two handmade headstones in my walks around to cab cemeteries. The other is also near Addie's grave. The top line of Rosella Duke's headstone names Hogabrooks, the funeral home which oversaw the burials of Addie and Clifford. According to a newspaper article found by Dr. Kerry Higgins-Went, Rosella was shot accidentally by her husband when he grabbed a gun their toddler had just picked up from the nightstand. Perhaps in the aftermath, there were no funds to cover a headstone. It would seem that the Hogabrooks funeral home understood how important it would be for family to have graves left with identifying markers. If we return to my earlier discussion of slaves and post-Reconstruction African-American cemeteries, you will remember that I said that they were often left unmarked. Perhaps Mama Hogabrooks felt that no one's grave should be left unmarked, and so even if a family were unable to pay, she made sure they were properly identified. Perhaps these families came to the decisions independently. Ultimately, though, their actions allowed their family members to be gone, but not forgotten by those who visit the cemeteries. And Addie was not forgotten. In 1975, a Mrs. A.B. Lucas posted an, in posted an in memoriam in the Atlanta Daily World for her mother, Addie Charlton, who had passed away on January 8, 1937, and also to Mrs. Lucas's mother-in-law and father-in-law. It is potentially this daughter that had the professional tombstone for Addie put up at a later date. Mrs. Lucas, the daughter, also has a hall named for herself at a local Scottsdale church, demonstrating that although Addie may have passed away in poverty, her family, represented by her daughter, continued to rise through the local community. Graves at Washington Park Cemetery, or Washington Memorial Gardens, in Scottsdale, Georgia, offer a glimpse into African-American life in the early to mid-20th century Atlanta metro region. Toby, Clifford, and Addie were all likely descended from slaves throughout Georgia. Toby and her mother reached levels of prosperity most could only dream about. Clifford was raised by his widowed mother and widowed grandmother in the Auburn Avenue area of Atlanta, but who were also able to move from being wage workers to owning a boarding house. 
and Addie escaped the sharecropper life of rural Georgia to live by the mills in Scottsdale, but her daughter continued to move up within the community. Like my other cemetery episode, our first glimpse of Toby, Clifford, and Addie were from their headstones. But just a few generations before, it would have been possible that they'd all had rested in unmarked graves. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.